0: For our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Curtis and Whiteley entitled, New Wine is for New Wineskins. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today on another Sabbath day, a rainy Sabbath day. The fall has finally kind of came and we're getting some colder temperatures. So if you were to look at my, uh, as Reg just pointed out, the title of my message today is New Wine is for New Wineskins. New Wine is for New Wineskins. And from the beginning of time, humans have held on to various traditions, as we could call them, in basically all aspects of our life. We have traditions for everything. Some traditions are good, and I think we can all agree with that, and some traditions, of course, are not good, and we should avoid them. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines the word tradition as an inherited, established, or customary pattern of thought, action, or behavior, as in a religious practice or a social custom. So, a tradition is a handed down belief that dictates certain actions or beliefs. And I also like how the new compact Webster Dictionary shortly puts it as a long accepted custom or belief. But here we are, the last day of October, October the 31st, and most of our culture, as we know, uh, is getting and gearing up to celebrate one of our society's traditions, right? Most people in our society are gearing up for the celebration of the second most advertised holiday in America, the holiday of Halloween. But while people have been going about their busy lives and buying their candy and getting their costumes ready and and all the different things that they need for the parties that they're going to go to. This day actually marks another anniversary, another thing that happened within history approximately 498 years ago. On October the 31st, 1517, this is the day that is believed to be when Martin Luther, the German monk and professor of theology, posted what has now been called his 95 theses or objections on the church door of Wittenberg, Germany. Thus sparking what we now know in history as the Protestant Reformation. Now we don't know for sure whether or not Martin Luther actually nailed these 95 theses, these 95 objections to the Church of Wittenberg. That's kind of a tradition. There's no actual, uh, I guess you would say, historical data that's really, you know, firmly points to that. But we do know that there was a lot of things that were going on in that period of time that sparked this movement that we call the Protestant Reformation. Some background information about that time there in the 16th century and even a little bit before that. Many people had become began becoming fed up with what they thought was absolute corruption within the church. And we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church, thus what pretty much everyone within Western Europe were. The lavish lifestyles of the popes and clergy, often gained by things such as church fees that were charged for things like weddings, baptisms, funerals. The great disparities in wealth between the rich and the poor. The printing press had came along around this same time, just a little bit before it, and all of a sudden now people were becoming more literate, thus empowering people to argue against the traditions of the day. Now, I don't want you to think that I am trying to promote in any way uh, the teachings of the German monk Martin Luther. I'm not. There's some things I think we can, as human beings, we can say that, you know, he did that was good, but obviously there are some things, many things, that we can say that was not good within his teachings and within his actions in his lifetime. What really hit the nail on the head, though, what really broke the camel's back was something called the sale of indulgences. Now, if you don't know what an indulgence was, the indulgence was literally a certificate that you could buy during this period of time from a priest. And that certificate would basically give you Less time in purgatory when you die. So, this action, this idea, this teaching became so prevalent that at one point they started even selling indulgences, these certificates to lessen their time in purgatory to people for their dead relatives. So you have a father that's died a few years ago, you know that, you know, purgatory just to let you know the background of that was the idea that a soul who's was not pure enough to enter into heaven yet would go through this intermediary you know, the state, the state called purgatory to be purged basically before they could enter onto the afterlife, the true afterlife and heaven. Well, the idea had gotten so corrupt, so out of line, I guess you would say, that people started even believing that dead relatives could be bought into heaven. There was actually, and we don't actually know if this was really said, but there was this traditional jingle that went around that said, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. This was a tradition, and obviously, as you can imagine, if you were to study history, you would see that this was an economic tradition for the church. Particularly, the sale of indulgences really amped up when they were wanting to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica there in Rome. But we don't really hear that from the priests that are preaching about indulgences. The emphasis is all on what? Hey, look, you want to get out of purgatory? You want to go to heaven? You want to guarantee your place in heaven? There's this indulgence, and the idea was that you'd pay for the indulgence, the certificate would be signed by the Pope, and the Pope would release you from purgatory, and would actually, thus, almost give you a credit, a credit to sin, because it would also forgive you for sins that you had not yet committed. So, this was the idea of purgatory. And as a result of this movement that Martin Luther did, much of those 95 Theses spoke and were objections to indulgences, Martin Luther was not objecting, and just to back up, Martin Luther wasn't even trying to start a new church, that did end up happening, it ended up happening, we have now, not just the Roman Catholic Church within Europe, we also now have a new strand of Christian theology called Protestantism, which ends up splintering into literally hundreds of different factions and groups, what Martin Luther wanted to do was reform the church that he was in. He was wanting to fix the corruptions and the issues that were going on in his day. And so we come to Jesus and looking at him and his setting and his historical life on this earth. And we see just like Martin Luther, and I'm not trying to compare Martin Luther to Jesus in the sense of obviously morality or anything like that, or like the teachings that we should look at. But we do see like Martin Luther trying to object against tradition of his day we see Jesus, as well, objecting to tradition in his day. A few years ago, actually several years ago, almost ten years ago, I gave a message that covers the passages that we're going to look at today. And I entitled that message, The Unorthodox Jesus. The Unorthodox Jesus. And I just want to kind of talk to you a little bit about that idea of unorthodox. Orthodox just basically means that like, you are essentially in the mainstream you view things in the mainstream way of viewing things, you do things in a mainstream way of looking at things. We have something called Orthodox Christianity. And everybody's idea or definition of what constitutes this Orthodox Christianity is gonna be a little bit different. But typically what you see when people define what is an Orthodox Christian, you see that they have certain tenets, certain traditional tenets that have been believed throughout the history of church history, such as the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, the idea of, you know, uh, uh, of heaven and hell, the idea of a, a literal return of Jesus. Those are just some examples of things that would be considered uh, a defining tenet on whether or not you were considered orthodox. And then you have the unorthodox Christians of the world. We in this church would be considered unorthodox. We do not believe in the Trinity. We do not believe in certain other tenets within mainstream Christianity. So we would be labeled unorthodox. And in fact, if you were to go out and buy a book, any of them, you could probably, you know, there's probably four or five out there, like the Kingdom of the Cults or something like that. You would probably find some of our history in that book as labeled an unorthodox strand of Christianity that's heretical. That's probably the what you would read. All right? But let's get into Jesus. Let's talk a little bit about the unorthodox Jesus because Jesus... He was a rabbi, or considered a rabbi to the people around him, considered religious leaders. But unfortunately, for many people that viewed him, he didn't do things quite the way that people thought you were supposed to do things. So let's go to Matthew, the ninth chapter, and let's read verses 14, 15, 16, and 17. We just have four passages here I want to get into. Matthew, the ninth chapter, verse 14, breaking in. This is an entire... uh, a huge strand of, of incidents that takes place in Jesus' life here in his teachings that's presented in Matthew, but we're just going to break into one. And in verse fourteen it says, Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast verse 16 says no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, skins or else the wine skins break the wine is spilled and the wine skins are ruined but they put new wine into new wine skins and both are preserved so one of the first things i want to do here so I just want to kind of do a little analysis of this text. Let's just kind of go and look at the background. Let's see, what is going on here? What has prompted these individuals? We see the first thing that's taken place is, is it's John the Baptist, his disciples come to Jesus and they have a question about fasting. Now we know what fasting is. This isn't something new to us. We participate in fast. Uh, at least one day of year on the Day of Atonement, but also we participate in various fasts. Maybe there are certain things going on in our lives that has prompted us to fasting. Fasting is a biblical concept. It's a good concept. And in this day, in particular, there is actually a specific fast that went on throughout different parts of the year that actually we do not find in the Bible. Still, okay, fine. Nothing wrong with that, but what we have in the New Testament is we have Pharisees, specifically a very zealous group of Judaism in this point in time, had come to have actual traditional fast days, particularly on Monday as well as Thursdays. Okay, usually this would take place in between the Passover and Pentecost, and in between the days, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and what was known as the Feast of Dedication. An example of this can be found, and we're not going to go there, but if you were to just want to write this down to look at it later, we see that parable of the righteous Pharisee. The Pharisee makes the comment, I fast twice a week in his prayer. This is a reference to that historical tradition that was taking place during Jesus' day about fasting on Mondays and Thursdays. Now the tradition, as we can look at in in historical sources, evolved from this idea that when Moses went up onto Mount Sinai, there in the, what would be called the Torah portion, or also, you know, the book of Exodus, as we would call it, that he did so on a Thursday, and he came down from the mountain on a Monday. That's where this tradition evolved from. So we see that Jesus is being asked by John's disciples, and I get the hint, I could be wrong, I was not there, that it was kind of an innocent question. They're looking at Jesus. John has obviously said some really positive things about Jesus. John has demonstrated that he's trying to lessen himself, the importance of himself, and elevate the importance of Jesus. But they're confused. There's, you know, You're supposed to be you know, the one to come. Why aren't you participating in these you know, traditional norms that, of course, a teacher... Uh, of, of, of the Bible, of the, you know, what they would call the Bible, a, a teacher of the ways of God, would be or should be involving themselves in. Well, Jesus responds by giving three analogies. And those are the analogies we're going to look at. The first analogy or the first example is the example of the bridegroom. I think this is the primary example because this is a specific example that I think the hearers of John's disciples would really understand in light of what John the Baptist had told them. Now, the idea of a groom, specifically a bridegroom, within the Old Testament, we can actually go and we know that there is this idea of God Almighty being likened to a groom, to a husband. We use that God describes himself as the husband of Israel, about how he will gather you know, uh, his wife back to himself, that that wife of Israel. We know that this analogy is used within the Old Testament. We also know within the, or within the Old Testament, we also know within the New Testament when we look at the scriptures, when we look at the different things that are being talked about, we know that the idea of a groom had come to describe the Messiah's coming. We see John the Baptist in the third chapter, verse 29. And I didn't give this passage to Brian. I apologize. But he says, He who is the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And we see this continue to be a theme within the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, but also in the letters of the Apostle Paul. Like, for instance, we know we have a parable of a wedding banquet. We know we have a parable of ten virgins. There's this idea that's wrapped around the Messianic coming with this idea of a wedding feast, of a groom, of a wife, of a wedding uh, you know, a banquet that's supposed to take place. We see this even in 2 uh, uh, Corinthians 11, verse 2 where Paul makes the comment, I promised you in marriage to one husband. And of course, we know the book of Revelation has a lot of imagery that we can look at that literally is trying to describe this wedding banquet taking place, this bride of Christ that's supposed to be prepared for him. But Jesus' question is this. Can friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The actual Greek terminology here is sons of the wedding hall. It's an idiom for referring to the wedding guests or the friends of the bridegroom present at the celebration. John, as we saw, kind of almost described himself as the type of almost best man to this event. Now, Jesus is simply telling the, the, the disciples of John something they wouldn't understand. Jesus is likening you know, fasting, which was something that was good, And it was something that was advocated within the Old Testament, but it was also something that came to also be associated with mourning, with repentance, and things like that. And, of course, the coming of Jesus is a time of repentance, especially in light of what Jesus is offering. But we do know that Jesus is essentially saying, look, the friends of the bridegroom, they have the groom with them right now. Now is not a time for mourning. Now is a time for celebration. And this is a hint also at Jesus' death, because there comes a time where he says that the bridegroom will, at some point in the future, be taken away from them. Then they will fast. But Jesus continues on. He continues on with saying, look, these are the things I'm saying to you. I'm obviously identifying myself as the bridegroom, my disciples as the friends of the bridegroom. But he gives them two examples to try to explain it even further. The first example is the example of the patch and the unshrunk cloth. Now, the idea is this, real simple. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Essentially, what you would do is if you had some old jeans or some old uh, you know, piece of cloth- clothing or something that had a hole in it, if you were to go and grab a piece of cloth that had not been shrunk yet, maybe hadn't been used and tried to use that to patch up the hole on the old garment, what would take place after you would wash it, what would happen? Well, what would happen is is that patch, because it hasn't shrunk yet, would basically pull away from that old garment and would basically tear that old garment, thus making the hole even worse. But the second example, or the third example, I think is even more telling, because Jesus gives this, new, this, this last example, and it's the example of the new wine versus the old wineskins, which is basically the title of this message. Now, wineskins in these days, and many of us have probably heard of this before, were basically made of different types of skins or or leather. And they were used for storing wine in New Testament times. In fact, we even know that old wineskins typically would be used to store things like water, things that weren't expanding. New wine, or grape juice as we might call it, uh, not because we don't believe in wine in the New Testament, but rather before wine becomes fermented, uh, that's what it is essentially, is essentially—is just juice, it doesn't have any alcohol... Uh, component to it yet but new wine ferments and in the process of fermentation it expands and it would stretch a wine skin and so what Jesus is saying is this look if you have an old wine skin that's been used and oftentimes old wine skins would become hard they would become brittle you essentially if you put new wine into an old wine skin what would happen is is that you would have a bursted wine skin two things would take place the old wine skin would be ruined the new wine would also be ruined because it would spill onto the ground. But a new wineskin would be able to withstand the new wine and accommodate the fermenting wine, the expansion. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, what does Jesus mean? What are some reflections? What are some conclusions? I think the first thing we need to ask is, let's just understand the basic question that the disciples of John came and asked Jesus. Jesus is being simply asked, why he did not conform to a specific religious tradition that was common to not just the Pharisees, but obviously, as we see here, even other people within his day. And that was the practice of fasting on a regular basis on traditional days. We do not know exactly to what level of... uh, likeness that the disciples of John fasted in comparison with the Pharisees. But what we do know is that there were traditional days that the Pharisees fasted. And the Pharisees, during this period of time, were looked at as a religious authority. The simple response of Jesus, as we already kind of covered, was this. Jesus is saying it's inappropriate to engage in the practice of fasting right now, which is associated with mourning. But there would be a time where we would, or were, the bridegroom's friends would fast but let's try to understand that analogy what is that analogy all about with the old wine and the new wine let's look at this the blinders of tradition like the old wineskins, the traditional interpretation of Jesus's contemporaries had become so inflexible that the real messianic age that was upon them was unable to fit the preconceptions of the day Jesus' teachings did not fit into the traditional ideas as taught by the religious leaders of his day. There's an interesting passage in the, in the Gospel of Luke that I think kind of helps us understand this. And I think we can just sit here and think about things in our own life that can kind of also illustrate this. Luke, the 5th chapter, verse 39 says, No one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For he says, the old is good enough. The old is good is good enough. Let's just think about that with some of our own traditions within Christianity. Let's just think about some of the Christian traditions and conceptions today. Let's just think about maybe some of our experiences in here about leaving mainstream Christianity. Maybe there was a point in time where you were of a different faith. Uh, And I say that not to say that people who were you know, not Sabbath keepers or something that they keep Sunday, I'm not saying that they're not Christians, not in any way, shape, or form. But the world and the traditional conceptions of any religion, when they are basically held on to long enough, can be very strong. And it can be very difficult to accept what we would consider new wine, especially if we try to use old wineskins to fit that new wine into Matthew the ninth chapter, verse 17, the last very part, but it says, But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Which kind of talks a little bit about mixing traditions. About mixing traditions. You know, there's this idea that, you know, what if we, you know, took conceptions of mainstream Christianity and, and brought it into, you know, the, the, the biblical world or the ideas of the Bible. And many people have tried to do that, and what we end up having is, is we have a mixed tradition. We have basically a contamination of the Bible, and that's something that we see. And so this is basically what Jesus was fighting against. He was trying to tell people within his day, specifically the Pharisees, that had such a stronghold on the ideas that people thought religiously, that, look, this is an old, worn-out system. And I'm not talking about Judaism in, in general. I'm not talking about Jews being old and worn out. I'm not talking about that in any way, shape, or form. I'm talking about the traditions of the day. The mainstream traditions of Jesus' contemporaries. We could liken to the mainstream traditions of some of our contemporaries that has such a stronghold on the way they view the biblical account. And so sometimes tradition can become so strong in one's life that you're unable to accept any new wine. And what I'm talking about is the actual truth of the actual Bible. Now, one of the things I want to look at as we close here is the implication of Jesus' teachings. Okay? This is a lot of information. There's so many different analogies that we could go to. There's so many different, I think, practical applications that we could talk about within this passage. But I think one of the relevant ones in particular to us is this notion or this question of Jesus' messiahship that we, within our church tradition, have had to deal with in recent years. And of course, we can go back. I know that there's examples of different individuals that come to a point where they reject Jesus as Messiah. So the question of Jesus' messiahship is something that we, just in this church, have had to deal with within recent years and recent times. And it's not just the question of Jesus' messiahship, it's the legitimacy of Paul's teachings, the authenticity of the New Testament altogether, have all come to have been raised with some among our own tradition, our own faith here. Usually at the core of these objections are that Jesus simply does not fit the bill on how the Old Testament prophecy presents the Messiah to come, and the manner in which he, or they, because some believe it's not just one individual to be the Messiah, but there's more than one, that he does not fit the bill in the manner in which he was to come. Now, one aspect I want to really touch on is this. I want to say that I firmly believe, through my study, that these objections that people have about Jesus being the Messiah, are some of the same objections that Jesus' disciples and followers dealt with within their own minds themselves. Real simply, we see this brought out within the New Testament. Jesus' disciples oftentimes are confused at what Jesus is saying. Why? Because they were brought up on old wine. They had a system in which they believed the Messiah was supposed to come. They had certain expectations, I guess you would say, on how the Messiah was to come, what the Messiah was supposed to do. They looked for an earthly kingdom. They looked for a restored kingdom. And actually, the Old Testament talks about that. And it is true. That is a true prophecy and true presentation of how and what the Messiah is to do. What happened when he died? They thought they wasted their time. Even at the end, just before Jesus' ascension, the disciples asked Jesus one last time, Okay, you've done all these things, you died, you were resurrected. Now are you gonna do the kingdom thing? We've all you know we've all been looking forward to this, you know, idea of this kingdom coming. That's how we were raised. Surely now is the time, right? It's all over, all the you know, waiting. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or the season. The Father has in his own authority to do these things. But I tell you what, you do this. You go out and you preach my teachings to everyone in the world, basically. That's what we see. We even see Paul himself, in his early life, object to Christianity simply because the idea of a Savior, Messiah, being killed did not fit the model in which they believed the Messiah would come. We have a New Testament that doesn't just deal with the objections, but almost admits, yeah, I get it. He doesn't fit the bill according to the way we always viewed it. But there's one problem. He is alive and we saw it. What do we do? With a man who does all these teachings, and yes, it's very unorthodox. I mean, I'm sure that the disciples, there's no doubt in my mind, were uncomfortable sometimes with what Jesus said. They probably thought, oh my goodness, Jesus, man, he's gonna, they're going to be the laughingstock of all of Galilee with some of the things he's saying. It's kind of ludicrous. The problem is, is this. When you think one way and you follow someone, As ludicrous as it says, I think it's logical and reasonable when you see the person die, you see him alive again, and you see him ascend to heaven that you say, maybe we need to reevaluate the way we saw this. Because obviously, Satan didn't do it. God's with him. And at the authority, at the forefront of all the disciples' preaching was simple. We come to you Preaching, Jesus, crucified, died, and raised. That's how they open it up. Because they know that the people they're getting ready to preach to are going to think they're nuts. And so are the Greeks. And we see the Greeks think it's crazy to think that some person would die and want to come back to a human fleshly body. That's just unheard of that you know, got Paul laughed out of Athens, basically. So what we see in the New Testament is this idea of Jesus coming And the tenets of our faith, Christianity, one thing that I want to drive home is that any objections to your faith in Jesus Christ, there's one thing that needs to be clarified for anyone that objects to Jesus as the Messiah. What do you do with the empty tomb? You tell me what we do with the empty tomb, then we can talk. I don't care how much you think that Jesus went against the Torah, I don't care about how much Jesus went against the traditional norms of what any rabbi has to say. And we respect the faith of, of Jews. We respect that as that they're, they can believe in how they want. But this is for us, and I'm saying these things because it's become relevant to us. We deal with one big issue. The core of Christianity, the most apologetic, the biggest defense for Christianity is the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. Not just because Jesus taught this new philosophy, but because he taught with authority, and that authority was based on him dying and being rose from the grave. In fact, we believe, and I firmly believe, in the Old Testament, I think everyone in here does, but one of the greatest, I guess you would say, proofs that the Old Testament itself, or what's known as the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, actually is the word of god is because the one who died and rose again he put his stamp of approval that it was the word of god so as we move forward this is an idea and this is some things i think we all need to think about when it comes to trying to defend why we believe that jesus is the messiah you don't start with well what he you know of course those things are true and the disciples work in the new testament to Show and reevaluate and explain how, yes, even though he did not fulfill these things in the manner in which we always thought he would, he died and he's risen again, so we have to reevaluate and reexplain and reunderstand maybe how we traditionally thought these things in light of new revelation. And the second part I want to talk about today, just real quickly, it's not just this objection of jesus but also that we can get out of it and it's not just some nuggets i guess you would say that we could get out of jesus's words here in regards to uh you know how we deal with you know this idea of jesus seemingly being this contradictory figure that doesn't fulfill you know the traditions of men we also have to ask our question what can we do implication-wise within our own tradition because i think that all of us would agree that we have good traditions within our faith, and we have probably not so good traditions. You know, some are good, some are bad. But the bad thing about a bad tradition, as Jesus said, as Jesus kind of alluded to, when our old wineskin becomes so brittle and so old and so worn out, it can possibly leave us unable to accept new wine. When we refuse to be corrected by Scripture, by the way, On things like, this is the only true church. We've heard that idea of people trying to make the claim that they're the only true church. This is the way prophecy has to be. We've heard that idea. This is the only way to keep the Sabbath. And of course, many of us could come up with a whole list of things that just by being involved in something for too long and without keeping tradition on check too much, we eventually can become... Old and worn, you know. We can have a system where we don't realize it's become old and worn out, where we're unable to accommodate new wine. And I'm not talking about new truths. I'm talking about correction of the actual New Testament or the Bible in, in general itself. So, in closing, I want us to ask the question, or, or or encourage us to be careful to allow traditions to become so strong in our lives that we allow them to become old worn out wineskins that are unable to accommodate new understandings i'm talking about theological grids you know sometimes people and i'm guilty of this you know you you're reading something and you ask the question well how does that fit into like how i always understand everything there's nothing wrong with trying to understand the bible within other things that we have understood from the bible sometimes we can get wrapped up in trying to make everything fit. And what we realize is, is that maybe some ideas that we had about the Bible, maybe they're not quite as strong as we thought they were. We have to continue allow ourselves to be corrected by the Bible. I'm not talking about the essentials. I'm not talking about Jesus, obviously, being the Messiah. I'm not talking about holy days and Sabbath. Those are things that are firmly rooted within the New Testament and the Bible. And I can even say that some traditional teachings of this passage within this part of the scripture about Jesus talking about wine and new wineskins... Is used to argue against, see Judaism, everything the Sabbath keeping, holiday keeping, you know, non-bacon eating, non-shellfish eating stuff. All that stuff is done away with. Jesus is saying, "Look, that's old wine. Now you need the new wine that allows all that stuff." We know that doesn't work within the framework specifically of Matthew itself because Jesus is cited as saying all types of things, promoting the idea of the law of not, you know, doing away with the law, but rather, you know, fulfilling the law. You know, anyone that teaches men to, you know, not fulfill the law or not keep the law is going to released in the kingdom, we know that it does not you know, enter Jesus' mind. That is not his teaching. He's not against the law. He's not against uh, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. Further, nothing can be further from the truth. He upholds it, and he demonstrates that him himself, his teaching, is completely in line with it, All, albeit very differently as we expected it to be. So these are the things that I want us to consider. As we go on in our life, there's many traditions I think we could point to. Some of them are very good. There's nothing wrong with tradition. As long as that tradition doesn't become such a stronghold in our life that it makes us old and worn out and brittle to the point where we can accept new wine.